Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Michael Rice. Based in Los Angeles, Michael is a manager, leader, consultant, software engineer, and a lawyer with over two decades of experience working in the industry for companies including Red Hat and Intel, Disney Studios and Accenture, and many more, and he's most recently with VMware. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael Rice and check out his website at michaelrice.com and sign up for his Tech Lead coaching newsletter at michaelrice.substack.com. And you can also check out his Tech Lead coaching podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere. Finally, if you're a Tech Lead yourself, you should also check out his other website, techleadcoaching.com. Michael is the author of the LeanPub book, Professional Services, Day One, Hour One, An Introduction to Professional Services in Software Companies. In the book, Michael offers a unique introduction to having a career in professional services for software companies, what it means to be a consultant, and how to plan and conduct your career. In this interview, we're going to talk about Michael's background and career, professional interests, his books, because he's got two, uh, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub to self-publish. So thank you, Michael, for being on the Front Matter podcast. No, no, thank you for having me. It was great. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you first became interested in computers and technology. Yeah, well, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, talking about myself happens to be my favorite subject. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, honestly, I got started in software. I, I'm going to reveal my age by saying this, but I got involved probably in the 80s, the 1980s. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's funny, it was, uh, I grew up in Phoenix, so Phoenix is very much like a, you know, at the time was very much construction heavy, kind of a, I guess you could almost call it a blue collar town at the time. <clears throat> and so, you know, I had a, I had this computer that I bought, it was actually called a Hyundai, it was a Hyundai computer, I don't even know if they make computers anymore. And um, <clears throat> I didn't like tell anybody, you know, like at school, like I never mentioned I would go home and play with computers and, and write code and. And uh, it's funny how, like, different things are now today because, like, you know, I just got back from Silicon Valley yesterday. And, like, <laughs> I see all these these people walking around and I'm like, oh, they're so geeky, you know. Like, when I was a kid, that was not cool. So, so um, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of nice to to feel uh, less geeky, I guess. <laughs> or, or maybe it's good to feel geeky and not feel not cool, right? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, I can date myself. I was, you know born in the 70s. Uh, and I remember the introduction of the personal computer to the home and to the school and things like that. And um, for those, you know, not as old as us, um, back in the day, and there, there is actually a lot of residual elements of this today to this day. Um, but being into computers made you a nerd. Um, and, and it was, uh, that was a bad thing. And you would suffer sort of bullying and things like that. And just negative representation everywhere you looked, actually, um, including in, in movies and, and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, but but that has completely changed, or that hasn't completely changed. But that has changed a great deal. And so, what was your when you when you first got your when you got your first computer? Did you start coding, or did you play games? Well, you know, I mean, th those were those old PCs, right? So there wasn't a whole heck of a lot you could do. <laughs> you could write code, um, you know, like basic, and you would get. I don't know if you remember, but they would they had these magazines you would buy. They were like there was Computer Shopper, that really big thick magazine, but there were other magazines too. And what they would have is like code on them in them. And you had this kind of special ruler with like a magnifier and you kind of roll down line by line and hand transcribe the code. And that's pretty much what I did. There were a few games. You could go to Target, you know, the Target um, uh, convenience or store, right? And um, you could buy floppy disks with some games on them. <laughs> but they were all text-based or, or really, you know, lousy graphics. And then later I got really into um, like... We, I bought a modem, right? I talked my mom into buying me a modem. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, on the back of Computer Shopper, they would have all the all the phone numbers you could try to dial, and you know, more often than not, you get a busy signal, and <laughs> but you try to get into some bulletin board system, and I ended up running one of those for a while. Got into like FidoNet, and it was all stuff like like I said, like we talked about. You know, I would come home from school and mess around with that, you know, and that's what I would do for fun. But I certainly didn't go around telling people at school how cool it was that I started some bulletin board system. <laughs> Right. Very much like a secret thing. And you didn't study computer science at university, as I gather from your LinkedIn profile. No, no. You know, what's kind of funny was um, back in the 90s, <clears throat> right around the time that I was in college, I started out in college, you know, like I said, you, I didn't want to be a programmer. And like, no, and honestly, most people didn't want to do that. And if you were to ac ask like an academic advisor at the time, they would generally, at least in my school, were trying to, you know, dissuade you from doing that. Because they were, you know, they were like, there are only so many computers in the world. There isn't that much demand for computer programmers. And that's what they were called, right? And so I actually started out in accounting school. And in accounting, it was in Arizona State in uh, Phoenix, Arizona State University. And um, the program was heavily sponsored by um, Anderson Consulting. So Anderson Consulting was a really big deal before um, it was one of the big – I don't know if I, I think they were part of like kind of the big eight. I mean, there were the big eight accounting firms, and then Anderson was kind of a, a consulting firm that had grown quite a bit. It was it was very successful, and so they were all trying to use the accounting program to try to turn us into these kind of um, consultants around things like databases, like designing databases and designing um, you know SAP, the the big uh, enterprise, the ERP system, trying to turn us into SAP consultants. Which, you know, I wasn't so much interested in the technology, but I was really interested in the business side of it, and I thought that was super exciting. Um, you know, for a nerd, right? I was like, hey, those skills that I had, suddenly I'm like, I could be cool and I could be relevant, and not only that, but I could work for a company like Anderson Consulting. And, you know, people would actually pay for what I know, right, and pay a premium and fly me around the country or the world to do that kind of thing. That sounded super cool to me. So I got really excited about it. I got really engaged in the program. But back then, um, there was – I know the job market is extremely hot right now. I know because I hire software engineers and consultants. Um, but back then, it was I, – I, it almost felt hotter in the sense that you could just walk into a job. I, I, I remember I would get jobs without even like no coding exercises, no interviews. They would just hire you over the phone and say, come write code for us. And that's what we did. And, and so it was so hot that I actually like ended up like basically just not finishing my degree. I was like in my – so we do the semester system or we did the semester system at the time. I think I was in my third year of school. Like so I was a senior and my last um, – my last semester, I didn't even finish. <laughs> so I just, it was so good that I just went out and I ended up working for like Intel at the time. And um, yeah, so I didn't finish. But then ultimately, um, once the online school programs came on, I finally did finish. But it was quite a while later. And they didn't have a computer science program at the time. We're so. talking mid-90s here, right, I imagine? Uh -huh, right yeah. when the World Wide Web was kind of like exploding. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, eventually um, you took some time off, uh, not to travel, but to go to law school. Uh, what was the, what was the reasoning behind that? <laughs> I know that's like another dirty little secret that I don't tell. This is kind of funny. Like it went full circle, right? So I'll tell you how I ended up there. The, um, in, 
the 2000s, so we had gone through the 90s, and then there was the dot-com bust that happened. And, and a lot of people, it's funny, the people I hire that are a generation or two behind me don't know about this. But there was a time when all of a sudden there were no jobs for computer programmers. There was nothing going on. But I managed to survive that, and I, I held on to my job. But then it, the industry, it was kind of weird, like writing code and developing software after that period, it was kind of like, I don't know what the right, the right word to describe it, but it really wasn't that cool. It was very like the, the processes that, like the processes we followed to develop software were what you call like waterfall today. And, um, and it was very like high pressure, very almost kind of assembly line like mentality. And it just wasn't fun at all. And so by then, you know, it's kind of funny. I thought, you know, we did the World Wide Web, right? And we were building these applications that were web-based, um, you know, solutions. And they were kind of cool. But after a while, you start doing that over and over and over again. And it seemed like that was as great as it was going to get. And I'm like, well, you know, I've kind of done this. It's kind of boring. And so my, um, my stepdad in Arizona was, um, was a judge, uh, like a county judge. And so he had... Um, he had a huge network of lawyers and friends, and so I thought that was a pretty cool, you know, business and so or industry, and so I just kind of took a break. I went up to Seattle, went to law school, really loved it. You know, like I said, like I told you, I was kind of a college dropout in a way, but then I and so I didn't get into a great law school, but I got into a school I really liked, and I really loved it. You know, like I really engaged in it. I, I tried really, really hard. It was a, it's, a, it's a really intensive experience. For, for people that are listening to the podcast will know, at least if you want to do well. And so I actually did great. I graduated toward the top of my class, um, ended up getting a clerkship in the federal court system, which I did, which is like a once in a, it's, I tell people it's kind of like, it, it's similar to getting a job in Congress, right? You know, like a, like a clerk job or, um, or a, I don't know what the right word is, but, but it's a big deal because you get to work right there with a the judge and see how law actually happens. Love the experience. But the only problem was when, when I came out of that clerkship, it was like the height of the recession still. And so, um, you know, there weren't a lot of options even for somebody who had done pretty well. But I think it was kind of a good thing because, honestly, I don't know that I would have been happy <laughs> just working as a lawyer. And because in, while I was in law school, the, all of a sudden software became super cool. Like really cool. And there were all these startups and I was in Seattle. And I got really engaged in the, the startup ecosystem. I was doing um, like software patents and like I was just like it was like I was more technical than I'd ever been while I was in law school. It was the strangest experience. And so after law school, I ended up working for Accenture, which is was a company I'd always wanted to work for. They're, they're a massive consultancy at the time. I think they were just short of 300,000 people. And I just heard that I think they just crossed over 500,000 people worldwide. So it's a, um, it was a great opportunity. And that's how I ended up working at Disney. And Accenture was formerly Anderson Consulting. Yeah, well, actually, I think it was not. That's kind of the line, right? But it, it was what I think happened is a number of the partners from Anderson went off and created their own thing. Oh, that's right. So yeah. Anderson yeah. burned, I think, went bankrupt. And they, it was done. So, but there were a number of cons, uh, partners that left and then formed uh, Accenture. And what was it, just just uh, for people listening? What was that experience like? So there you are, finally working for this big global consultancy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Accenture is a really interesting place. I mean, it's so big that like I can hardly speak for the entire company because they have so many. They're engaged in so many different businesses and industries and verticals. And um, 
and mine was the media and entertainment vertical here in Los Angeles, and um, which makes sense. And um, you know, it's a it's a it's a really interesting place because it's a fairly aggressive environment. So the consultants are all. Well, not all, but um, like I said, I can't speak categorically about such a big company. But many of the consultants are very aggressive. They want to get promoted. And at the time, they had kind of a – I don't know if a stack ranking is quite the way to describe it. But, you know, basically they'd say, hey, look, in this group of – this pool of people, you know, they'll put numbers on people. And you're number one, you're number two, you're number three, you're number four, right? And so the goal was to be in the top list. And I think – Having just left law school, I felt pretty pretty competitive in that world. But then again, I was writing code for the first time again after a few years of being out. So it was it was a great experience. I, I really really loved Accenture. I, I always tell people that um, that are um, you know like just coming out of college or just getting into into programming or software, um, you know, working for a consulting firm is a really great opportunity. Just because you know, I, like I said, I, I worked <clears throat> for companies like Intel. I worked in like a cubicle year after year after year. And it was kind of like the same, I hate to describe it like this, but it felt a lot like the same year of experience repeated over and over again. <laughs> or maybe it was like one year of experience spread over six years, right? Um, <clears throat> but in consulting, it's like real rapid fire. So you're kind of constantly going from one project to another. The players are, that are involved are different. You know, the pressure, there's probably usually a lot more pressure, not always, but a lot more pressure to get things done. Um, so it just, it forces you to grow in ways that, you know, if you're just kind of working in, you know, an individual contributor role in a big company, you just, I, I think you just generally don't get those kind of opportunities to grow. Yeah, I think, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, I spent a few years as an investment banker working in mergers and acquisitions uh, in London um, in the European utilities sector, which sounds boring. But, you know, it's like all of a sudden someone taps you on the shoulder and it's like, you know, the next day you're in Paris for six months yeah. working on a company like that you've don't you knew knew nothing you knew nothing about the day before, yeah. uh, and then you have to get really into the into the weeds, and it can be really exciting, and it can be this there can be this incredible. It's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of hours and jobs like that. But if you if you like what you're doing, if you like change and pressure, and to some extent competition, uh, those worlds can be a very good even and even if you don't want to do it forever. Uh, having a couple of years of experience in an industry like that and, and in like consulting, it sounds, can actually really, really change you uh, yep. and change the way you approach challenges and whatever you go on to do afterwards. Um, just to digress for a moment, uh, so we'll, we'll come back to your uh, career as a tech lead and a consultant and the things you write about in your books. Uh, but so you're a lawyer and you're, you know, you know, software. Uh, what are some of the what are one or two of the things that software engineers should know about the law in the United States that they typically don't know? That's a great question. You know, I think, um, I think the, the, there's, there's a lot of different bodies of law. And I think the one that I would recommend, um, so intellectual property obviously comes up a lot. And I think people get a little wrapped around the axles in terms of how intellectual property works. And I think, um, I think in a lot of ways, I would say it's probably the least important area to focus on when you're writing code. I think some of the more interesting areas are what's happening now. Um, with uh, if you think about a lot of the technology that we're building today, you know, touches lives in the ways that 
you know, when you and I were kids, it didn't, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the back in the in the early days, we would just write a game or you know build some little thing. But now, you know, the applications that we're building, um, you know, obviously collect a lot of data. They connect people. They do things um, that um, intersect with people's daily lives in ways that never have before. And so I think um, having a good understanding of not just the law, but like why the laws are there. Um, I think it would be a very interesting area for software engineers or product managers or people that are building software to think about. So I think they're often seen as like a a stumbling block or something that gets in the way of getting things done. But um, I think if you were to step back and think about, you know, all these different countries that your software might run in, you know, they, they've written laws. <clears throat> you may or may not like the way the law cre- was created or what the law says, but the law is supposed to express, you know, that that um, that society's needs and their desires, right? And so things like privacy. Privacy has obviously become a huge issue here in California. Um, you know, I think rather than <clears throat> trying to work against the law, you know, or push up against its boundaries. Just kind of think about, like, what is society trying to tell you <laughs> as you're doing this thing? You know, the privacy actually matters, that there's some value, be- you know, there's some kind of, like, human societal value be- behind the law that's there. And so I think if you can work within the spirit of the law, and, you know, I think in most cases you're going to be in good shape. And I think I think you're kind of on the right side of history if you do those things, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing, especially if you are um... – if you're in part of a small startup, um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm lean pubs, resident, non-technical person, even though I do do some coding and have to know, you know, how to look at, look at code. Uh, but you know, given my background in investment banking and stuff like that, I'm the chief compliance officer and the data protection officer. And it's my job to read the GDPR, like actually read the legislation. And, and you just mentioned, uh, privacy in California and something that recently came, uh, into being was the CCPA or California consumer privacy act. Uh, which, you know, to, like, you know, we're based in Canada, but we have to know about this. Um, uh, we're based in Canada, but we have to know about the GDPR as well. Uh, and you have, if you're, if you're, it's a really interesting thing about the law now where a region or a country or even a state can impose rules that then apply to people doing stuff that have, are far away and have nothing to do with it. And so you actually have to, in the same way that like California's automotive regulation can end up setting the the stage for the whole country or like, you know, Texas's textbooks decisions can set the stage for textbooks around the country. Um, you know, one small part of the world can affect the rest of it uh, when it comes to what you're doing, if you're a company operating or even an individual uh, operating online. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the CCPA, if, 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 if you happen to be up, up on it, I don't want to, I don't want to put you in a position where you don't, you don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah, I probably can't go into it. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. I mean, probably, I can't, I mean, it sounds, it, that would be something we could do a whole thing about someday. Yeah, uh, okay, okay. No, I thought, I thought, yeah. I, I thought I'd, I'd try and take advantage of having you here as a, as a lawyer because <laughs> I've been, I mean, I've been reading about it and we've been adjusting our terms of service and things like that in order to, to adapt to it. So my loss. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're like, hey, let's schedule a podcast and get free legal advice. Exactly, <laughs> just... Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what this was all about. Um, uh, but anyway, in any case, yeah, no, it, it, it really is an interesting thing that, you know, being, a, being, even being a software engineer, you kind of have to know the law. Um, yeah. Yeah, but like I said, I think, um, I don't know, I just don't want people that are hearing this or that, you know, I just don't want, 
don't want you to get wrapped around the axles with what the law is so much. You know what I mean? It's, I think it can, it can feel like antagonizing otherwise. And I, I, you know, I think it's actually, you know, there are the quirky laws and the ones that cause you frustration and it's own, it can feel annoying, but it's also part of like, you know, it's part of being in society. Right. Like like we we don't drive our car at, you know, 100 miles an hour. Well, I mean, not usually 100 miles an hour down the 405 here in L.A., you know, because we're putting people at risk. Right. And it's dangerous. So and I think um, the law is there to protect against those kind of harms, just like it's there to protect people's privacy and their rights and what they value. So so I, I think I think if you change your relationship with the way you look at the law as a software engineer, you can find a little more happiness and a little less <laughs> frustration, hopefully. Oh yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there are there are sometimes you know bad laws with bad lobbies behind them, but typically a law is there because uh, a lot of people were concerned about something and they want to. Um, and a lot of people think it's like it's all about protecting the consumer or the citizen from some from some negative corporate sort of activity. But actually, a lot of laws exist to sort of like provide clarity for you as a business for what the ground rules are on which you can build what you do uh, and being a good a good member of society so although like when something new comes out you're like damn it now I've got to read this long legal document and you know it's often you know legislators and even even lawyers who draft stuff don't really understand the industries that they're touching on so that can be very frustrating to see but when you understand that the intentions behind it are usually usually good uh, and what and as you say, like going at a high level, like what is the law there for? It's in order to you know enable us to all do stuff and get along safely and productively. And when yep. you view it that way, uh, when a new law comes out, it's like okay, well now there's some new ground rules. You know, pretend it's like a board game, and you know there's a new iteration of it or something like that. And you've just got to you know read some read read the fucking manual. Um, <laughs> uh, so moving on, so uh, so you, part of your career has been uh, being a, a tech lead. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, for those, for those who might not know, everyone knows what coding is and stuff. And you know that like a lot of our software projects are built up by coders, but what's a tech lead? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, um, because there isn't really a good answer, but I'll, I'll set the context a little bit. So in most companies, anytime you, so, you know, as a programmer, there's, you, you could, as a, or as a software engineer, you could theoretically build an app and there, there's, there's lots of stories of people, about people who build a cool app, you know, and they put it on the app store and they make a ton of money and, but they do it on their own. The reality is in most organizations, it's a, it's a group of people building software together. And so, um, there are managers typically in an organization, you'll have like a team of, of software engineers, um, which might be more than just software engineers. It could be like cute quality assurance, QA people. There could be product managers, Speaking of law, there's like a new thing now that you see sometimes like legal counsel will show up in your team um, or product counsel, they call it. Sorry, product counsel. Um, and, you know, so you've got this assembly of people, but then in the in the organizational chart, you often have a like a manager. So the typical role in a software company would be like an engineering manager that's theoretically managing this team, whether it's a software company or uh, like a financial services industry or whatever it is. You'll have an engineering manager who's, who's ostensibly there to make sure the team's getting all the things done and, and getting the features developed and shipped and all these things that we do in software engineering, which is a lot more involved than just programming, right? Programming is writing code. The vast majority of software engineers spend you know 90% of the time reading code or talking about code or thinking about code and very little time actually writing code. So anyway, 
a tech lead is often this kind of amorphous role that you'll you'll see show up from time to time depending on the organization. So if an engineering manager has let's say there's in his or her uh, world they you know let's say they've got five or ten software engineers but they've got a number of projects coming in right or a number of products they're working on or features or or whatever it's usually more than just one thing it's usually lots of things at once so an engineering manager if you think about who they are they're often software engineers who got promoted into this role and so they've got this kind of like big field of stuff they have to work on they've got all these like people they've got to manage they've got all these projects like they've got things in terms of projects they've got people and they've got time and they have to like kind of manage all this stuff it's pretty chaotic so most engineering managers or people in that you know at that first level man people management layer rarely are able to actually keep track of all the stuff <laughs> and so what they'll do is if you've got a team let's say you got a team of like four or five people the engineering manager will often just kind of like go and you know, tap one of those individuals for any number of reasons to say, look, I'm going to delegate some of the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing, you know, in terms of like, you know, making sure that all the right products, all the right features are being built, they're being built the right way, on time, on schedule, et cetera. I'm going to give that to you, tech lead, right? And so, you know, if you Google out there for tech lead, you'll find basically for every tech lead that writes an article on what a tech lead is, they've had their own experience. And they'll kind of write it and they'll say, this is what a tech lead does. And then you go find another article that says, this is what a tech lead does. And it's hard to triangulate because of the reason, because of the way that the tech lead role shows up. It just varies depending on who the engineering manager is, what the team is, and what they need. So the answer to the question is, what a tech lead? What is a tech lead? I'm going to give you a consultant answer. It depends. It depends a lot on the circumstances on the ground and what the needs are. So... Uh, but some of the skills uh, do kind of cross boundaries. And I think you, you've written uh, about the importance of listening, um, which yeah. sounds quite abstract, but it's actually a pretty a pretty important thing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of, of listening and why it's sometimes challenging for a tech lead to, to do that. I think it's, listening is challenging for everybody, right? Don't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I lead, so in, um, in thinking about you know, in the book I wrote, it's called "It's How to Be a Tech Lead." It does need a new revision, which so I'm so grateful that Lean Pub lets me revise books because it definitely needs a refresh. Um, but the uh, the idea is because the tech lead role is really varied in terms of like what the needs are, you know, in the moment, what the role is for you at that time. I tried to focus on just a number of of capabilities really that I think will get you. I call them Pareto capabilities. So you're familiar with the term Pareto, right? Uh, I, so, I, I saw it in your book, but I actually didn't, didn't look it up yet. Uh, so if you could oh, tell me what that is, that, would be, that yeah. would be great. Yeah, Yeah, and I think it would be helpful for people that aren't familiar with the term. It's a term you hear a lot, at least in my industry. And so the idea was Pareto was – I'm going to I'm gonna bungle – somebody's going to correct me on this, which I hope they will. <laughs> but Pareto was uh, – what was he? Was he a mathematician or a researcher of some sort? And he kind of found this idea that like 20% of the – activities usually result in 80 or 20 percent of something results in 80 percent of the impact mm -hmm. so and it, it is this kind of weird principle that seems to hold true in a lot of different um, situations the real common one is organizationally you'll have maybe 20 percent of the people that have 80 percent of the impact it, it's kind of true in sales it's true in all kinds of places and so I was thinking like in all the time that um, I've been seeing tech leads and one thing that would be interesting to talk about is how lousy a tech lead I was. <laughs> oh, a, sure, a, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but um, I noticed that very successful tech leads later in my career, one, you know, once I like had evolved a little bit on my own, but also like seen other people in the tech lead role, and I've seen hundreds of them by now. Um, it's kind of the the patterns that I've seen. This is by no means some kind of exhaustive Google type research, which I wish I could do, but um, but I've noticed that I think that listening. And the reason I draw it out as one of the first four of the, the most important capabilities is because I think it's the foundation of everything. And if you think about what's like so wrong organizationally, you've probably seen this in your in your world. You probably see it at the coffee shop in the morning. Um, it's like so much of what's going wrong in projects is that nobody's hurt each other. So if you're a tech lead, if you haven't really heard what your team is telling you, then you can't really lead them and, and vice versa. If you haven't heard what the product manager really said or what the engineering manager really said, if you haven't been able to hear what they're, what they're telling you, then you're just going to fail. Like you're just going to make mistakes. And, and I think like as simple as, as the, the term you hear sometimes is motherhood and apple pie, which is not, <laughs> it's kind of getting to be an old term, but, um, but as, as simple as listening is, I think it's really important, you know? And I think, um, I think we overlook it. So I wanted to call it out first. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great explanation. And yes, it is, it is definitely a universal challenge. Um, uh, I just had an experience with this yesterday where um, someone I was working with was proposing something that was just so, prof- turned out to be probably the right thing to do, but to me was just so profoundly mistaken that I completely misheard what was mm-hmm. said and did something completely different. Yep. Uh, and it was just like I was in, I was in an alternate universe uh, and, and it was, it was me that I had to get over. Uh, and that didn't mean, that didn't mean agreeing, but it meant just, you know, being, being sort of outside of myself enough that I could actually hear what this other person was saying was something I failed at because I was so preoccupied with my own sense of what was the right thing to do. Um, so yeah, that, that can definitely be really hard. And you, you mentioned that you're, so you, you, and you write about this in your book that your first experience as a tech lead, you know, everything, everything sort of was finished, uh, but you would have given yourself a grade of a B or even a C if you, if you'd had to do that. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, what that was like and what you learned? Yeah. Yeah. And like to, um, to pick up on that last point about listening, you know, I think, um, you really, you know, it's kind of funny with that. Like it's, it's amazing how much we block our own listening. You know, it's like we want to blame other people for not saying things correctly or like, you know, making you angry or making you mad or irritating you or whatever. But usually it's just like if you just can get out of your own head for a minute, you can actually hear, you know, and it's and it's hard. It's very, very hard. And it's not a normal human thing to do to put your own needs aside for a second. And so I think, you know, like by, you know, that's that's kind of the thing I had when I was a. my first time really getting a project. So it was a, this was a semiconductor company in Phoenix and not Intel, but a different one. And, um, we were going to rebuild a, uh, it was like an Excel based process for, it was like very people like are going to, your podcast listeners are going to fall asleep when they hear this, but it's a very typical kind of enterprise software type thing to do. But there was this, there was this an Excel process where they generate quotes for um, people that want to buy the company's products. And it, strangely, that's actually really complicated because you've got all these like, you know, channel partners and, you know, discounting and all this stuff. So it's actually really complicated to generate a price um, for most companies of any size. And um, 
So this process was to try to like automate that. So if you rewind to the early 2000s, enterprise Java was like a big deal. So there was all this like really hot architecture about enterprise Java and Java beans and all this cool stuff and um, multi-tier architectures. And the reason the reason I'm kind of diving into this is because everybody's like ears and eyes are glossing over <laughs> as I describe this. But but I thought that was the hottest technology around and I thought that was so cool. All you know, there was this problem they presented to me of like, hey, let's like improve this process. All I heard is like, I want to build enterprise Java. And I want to improve my career, my resume, and this is going to make me, you know, another 20% on my next gig or whatever, right? Like, like the, building the software was more about what did Michael want to build, less about like what did what did the company actually need and what did they want. Um, that wasn't my biggest problem, of course. So the biggest problem was um, that was, it was actually a fairly cool design. People were were game for it. Um, so I got a team of one person. This is starting to get to be old history now, so I don't remember all the details. But there was one person onshore and two people offshore, I think it was that configuration. Um, kind of a mix of senior and junior people. And and I remember I was just like, oh, my God, I'm like in this position where I have these great ideas and I want to tell people to do them, right? If they would just do what I told them to do, they would understand how awesome this is, right? But actually, like, being in that position where, he's, he, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, Hey, I want X, Y, and Z to happen. And then people look at you, you know, first of all, it's like this public speaking moment that you're not used to, especially as a really nerdy software engineer. Remember, remember I was a nerd, <laughs> but trying to hide it. And then, um, you're in this moment where you're like, you've got these people looking at you, whether it's on screen like this or, um, or in a room and you're like, Hey, I want to do X, Y, and Z. And once you, the minute you step into that moment, I call these like leadership moments, you're actually stepping into this weird new version of yourself, right? And it can make you very nervous. And all of a sudden you're like, it's almost like out of body, right? It's almost like you're watching yourself talk to these other people. And, you know, once you get used to it, you stop feeling like that. But in the very early days, you know, suddenly you're very self-conscious. You're like, what am I saying? Am I saying the right thing? And it's all about you, 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 right? And so you're not really listening when people if somebody says, oh, well, but what about this problem? You know, your design, you said you want to do this design, but what about this? What about that? And they have their own vested interests, right? And they're trying to, they want to do things their way also. And trying to get that kind of like alignment and trying to get people all together, that's what leadership is. And, and it's crazy because, you know, to your question earlier about what is a tech lead, the tech lead is basically somebody that's been tapped who was an individual contributor who has no authority. I couldn't actually make these people do anything. They didn't report to me. And and I had to lead through influence, which is actually, if you really read a lot of leadership stuff, influence is the hardest type of leadership, right? Like it's, it's, it's an advanced level leadership. So we take people with no experience <laughs> who probably aren't really used to like getting humans to be aligned and get on track. And then we put them in the spot where they have to actually, get, you know, get everybody to you know, produce a result through, you know, like, whereas I, I used to write my own code, now I have to get other people to write code the way I want them to, or the way I think is the right way. It's incredibly hard. And so, yeah, I like, I was, I was terrible. Like <laughs> I did all the things you're not supposed to do, you know, like I, you know, I didn't create a safe environment. Nobody used the word safe environment back in those days, but like, you know, I would just be like, do what I tell you to. And if people push back, I was like, I would either just kind of like react badly or just go and hide and pretend they didn't say that, you know, like all these kind of like terrible behaviors that are like 
I shouldn't say terrible, but they're just kind of like immature, you know, and I was just immature in the role. And so, you know, it got done ultimately, I think mostly through my own heroics. I think a lot of tech leads will, will relate to this point. Like people, I'd be like, okay, fine, just you build this module, you over here build this module, and then I'll just stitch them together, which in other words, I'm up until three in the morning trying to get these things to, <laughs> to work together, even though like had I like put them, to, got the team engaged in the right way, they would have like built the right module together. I wouldn't have had to do that. But often tech leads will kind of take on this heroics role and try to get it done. And that's pretty much what I did. So it's a little clunky, a little buggy, but it worked. And in this context, what is a safe environment? And how did how did this change come about where safe environments uh, were something people were self-aware about and talking about? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. I don't know the answer to it, but I know, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about safety because, um, you know, I mean, the short answer is I think it, the term really came up from Google. So Google, I think, I could be totally wrong about this, but um, Google did this big organizational study about like, hey, why, you know, some of our teams are very high performing. Why is that? And one of the reasons they found was that the teams were safe. Um, so like the, the people were free to talk and just um, talk about issues. Um, I think I have this kind of alternative view on safety and or where it came from and why it's important. So if you think about um, like what, what does it mean to feel safe, right? It means that I have something I want to express or I have some result, like I'm an individual contributor and I want something to happen and I want to express an idea but I'm like afraid some there'll be some kind of backlash from that, right? And, um, you know, I think the idea is to enable people to feel like they can be included in the team, right? It's like an inclusive concept too. And, um, and I think the reason why it's particularly hard in software or in technology is if you, th there's, there's some new work that's really interesting around like, um, emotions, right? And different, so you can think about emotions. Um, I can't think of the author's name right now, but it's, it's really good. But the idea is you can kind of categorize emotions by blue zone, uh, red zone, yellow zone, and green zone. And so in the blue zone, it's this kind of like, it's a little bit depressive, right? That's where things like empathy come from. And, you know, it's a little bit sad, but it's also where all your intellectual capabilities come from too. So a lot of software folks or technical folks spend a lot of time in this kind of what I call blue zone. And so they're actually a little sad all day, right? <laughs> and so they're a little melancholy, but that's because that's where a lot of their intellectual horsepower is coming from. And so it's like you need to be able to be pulled out of that, that mode from time to time and feel safe because like you're a little bit, this is just my theory, but you're a little bit sad as you're writing code all day long. You're, you might get that little dopamine, what I call it, like a dopamine hit. Right. When you get the when you solve the problem and that's kind of what you're working for all the time because you're like, oh, I got the code to compile or the test passed or I shipped the feature, you know, um, and you get those little hits. But but generally, you know, if you walk around the halls of Silicon Valley, you don't see a lot of people smiling or giggling and running around, you know, like like you might like on a sales floor. Right. This is this is a very low energy kind of environment. And so I think I think when you spend a lot of time in that that mode all day long you know, you can be a little reticent to like come up with ideas or talk. And I think as a tech lead or anybody in a leadership role, no matter, you know, even if you're not, even if you're just informally trying to like get the team to be, to gel and be cohesive and successful, you know, you have to make it safe for them to be like, okay, let's come out of that mode. 
let's have fun, everybody lighten up a little bit, and then you can go back. So, And safety can be really hard to achieve in corporate environments, particularly. Um, you mentioned waterfall before and bricklaying, and this, this is something that's come up on this podcast many times. My, my first introduction to the world of programmers was a conference actually in Seattle, and it was really it, one of the things that I found most striking was how, how ac like actually really sad and unhappy so many people were. And it was because they were in an environment where they were their their managers were not technical people, uh, but they had been trained in managerial practices and maybe had a certificate or two. And I'm not saying this negatively like that was that was their career. And that was how it was structured. And that was fair and, and everything. Uh, but they treated. Um, the programmers as uh, bricklayers uh, whose work could presumably be measured in some very sort of precise way. And they probably had some arbitrary metrics that they were imposing on how they were sort of measuring how these programmers were doing. And they were just the most unhappy professionals I've ever met in my life. And, and uh, what they were doing was ostensibly creative and problem solving. Uh, but, but nonetheless, the sort of like, you know, to be sort of to put it in a tacky sense, the sort of corporate gaze didn't see that instead it saw just interchangeable you know hands mm -hmm. um uh have you seen that attitude change over the course of your career like has it gone from being more prevalent to being less prevalent yeah yeah for sure i mean for sure i think um and it's all it's for the most part really good um i think uh you know if i think about there was a time in the 90, like late 1990s, where there was a company in Phoenix that was hiring really big because they wanted to build some app. And this is like pre, pre, like some kind of desktop software or website, I think it was. And so they just recruited a whole bunch of people, uh, a whole bunch of software developers. I think they kind of paid a premium because nobody, like, you know, there was, there didn't, there wasn't a very good reputation for this company. But they very much treated them like, I mean, the company was fundamentally a manufacturing company. And so you, as a developer, you had to show up at 7 a.m. I didn't, I didn't go work for this company, but I heard about it, you know, and then they would, you know, you couldn't leave your desk and you could only take certain breaks, right? It was like very like oppressive like that. And yeah, I mean, there's a big fundamental difference between the way, you know, being able to measure like what was like clockwork or like a piecemeal work that you might do in a manufacturing floor. Like, and I think even in that world, they're discovering that that's not the right approach, <laughs> but, um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think we're starting to figure it out. But I don't think that it's right to say that a non-technical manager can't manage um, software engineers. I think it's more about <clears throat> you know I think I think if a truly good manager and and I always I always complain that we like call uh, managers leaders as if it's interchangeable. I don't think it's interchangeable. I think you can be a really good manager. Of anything, if you're a good manager, you could literally manage anything, but you have to be able to, you know, invest the time to understand what the people on the ground are doing. So if I were to go work for, you know, manage in and out burger, <laughs> you know, I might be able to do it, but I, I'd have to like spend a, a quite a bit of time understanding how the people on the, in, on the, on the grill line or whatever it is, do their work and what, what motivates them and what makes them excited. And I think to your point, if, you know, software engineers, you know, it's a big industry now, so I can't speak for all of them. But a lot of them really get that what really gets them animated, gets them excited, is solving a problem, right? Or just fundamentally, you know, 
you get the code to run or you ship a feature or you or some of them really enjoy just spending that time on the whiteboard and thinking about like, hey, what's the best approach here? You know, uh, and, and I think if you take that away from them, you know, you're just not going to have a very high performing team. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I this uh, reading your book was my first introduction to this idea of a blue zone and then these these other colored zones. And I, I, I can I'm just, you know, imagining probably the red zone is is danger. Um, is, is that is that correct? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's red in the sense that, I mean, honestly, like we, you know, this is like something and, and a lot of this isn't in the book. I want to do it in the in the next revision of the book. But the idea is what's what's really interesting to me lately or really has my attention right now is, you know, writing code is a very like cortex heavy activity. Right. So it's, you know, if you really think about, you know, like my kid, my oldest kid right now is doing math. So I help her with her homework. She's in fourth grade. So they're doing fractions. And to her, it's just like this painful exercise in figuring out the right way to do the number. There's no, and, the, and the reason it's not fun for her or it doesn't really animate her is because it's all this kind of activity that's happening in her cortex or like logical brain. But she hasn't made an emotional connection to it. And so, you know, I think the reason a lot of software engineers who are really – we use the word passion, right – which is kind of wicked. We could spend all day talking about whether that's the right word to, not, to use or not. But the idea is they actually get, you know, by writing code, you actually have an emotional connection to what that code is. And so when you have oppressive managers who, like, will sever that connection, it, it messes with you, you know, and it, and it takes away the joy in what you're doing. And, and then it becomes a strictly logical exercise and, like, I don't know, should the button be on the left or right or should we – have a, you know, should the function look like this or not look like this? And pretty soon you just become disengaged. You're like, I don't care. You know, like whatever, whatever, whatever will satisfy the boss is good. And, and that takes the, whatever that emotional love out of it. And so to your, to your question about the red zone or blue zone or yellow zone, they're just, it's fair to have all those emotions, but, and it, it may be okay. The red zone would be things like you're angry, you're raged, or you're irritated, or any of those things. Actually, that's that may be okay, right? And and because it, it means you're engaged. And if you have, if you're writing code, and and you you know somebody was writing code a different way, and it puts you into the red zone, and you're enraged because this person's writing code the the way you disagree, you know how you act on that could create a real problem for other people. But if you just kind of recognize that like, oh, this is my emotion, right? Like I'm really mad because I really love this code. Then that protects your relationship to that code. Now what you have to do is kind of like step out and think about, well, how, what's the right way to express that feeling, right? Because you don't want to just like let your rage loose on somebody just because they didn't do things the way they did. Because they probably have their own emotional connection, right? And they found a lot of satisfaction or there's some reason why they did it that way. And I think that's how we create our safe environments is if, you know, first of all, it's kind of like you have to listen to your own emotional feeling about how something, you know, feels to you, protect that for yourself, right? Make sure you, you keep that emotional connection because that's what's going to keep you excited about your day job. But then on the flip side, understand that that other human has, is having a similar kind of emotional connection to whatever's happening. And I think um, we need, and you know, we just need to do this. <laughs> and, and, so, and so, creating a safe. Thank you very much for sharing all of that. By the way, it's just fascinating. And um, uh, so, is, is creating a safe environment partly involved? So you mentioned, you know, there's work is a multi-dimensional thing. Uh, and so, I'm sitting there trying to code something. There might be a very specific logical problem um, uh, that I need to just sort of go through the steps of. But at the same time, I have to have some part of me that's integrated with the system of pleasing my boss. 
Um, and so I imagine that the, I guess part of the thing that sort of I was trying to get at earlier was um, if that system of pleasing your boss is not somehow formally linked to the system of producing good code, then you end up with this mis this misalignment. Uh, and so um, uh, it can break that break that connection between the different dimensions of what I'm doing. If I'm if I'm saying that, if I'm yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, um, I mean it's true. Like you know, honestly, that's why we talk a lot about pushing leadership down to like the people that are closest to the to the information. And so you can often have a manager, maybe like more typically like a couple layers above, who are like, code's got to go out. <laughs> We've got to ship this product, We've got a marketing campaign launching in, you know, 28 days. This thing has to go live, do or die, because the senior manager is getting comped or paid on the thing being successful, right? And so there's this, like, downward pressure. And then, but the people on the ground, you know, know they may have not they may know this is not doable. And so they, um, like I said, when, if, if that management pressure just kind of rolls downhill, then that team just feels like they just have to, do whatever they have to do to collect a paycheck, right? And if you think about what leadership is, you know, people will do that and they'll follow you because they have to to get the paycheck, but it, it takes all, you know, you're just not going to have a high-performing team. They're just going to do the minimum they need to do to get their paycheck and go home, right? Yeah, speaking speaking of getting uh, getting your paycheck, um, moving on to you, I'd like to move on to the next part of the interview where we talk about your latest book, uh, which is Professional Services, Day One, Hour One, An Introduction to Professional Services in Software Companies. And you write very well, I think, about uh, the role of a consultant uh, and, and, and some of the detail. You go, very, I think, very uh, effectively into some of the details of it. And uh, one of the things you talk about is utilization. Uh, it's a tough, tough concept to face and a tough situation to be in. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what utilization means in the context of, you know, being in working in professional services. Uh, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. So thank you for that question. The, um, you know, consultants to me are very, it's, it's a very similar, you'll start to notice a theme with the stuff I do. I'm kind of more interested as I've grown in my career. I'm a little less interested in the technology piece of it and more interested in like the humans that bring it to life. And, um, and so tech leads are, are in a very interesting spot in the sense that they have to do something that's maybe a little unnatural for them, and consultants also. So consultants often will get into the business because they're very technical, they're very effective. Typically, they won't get hired in, in a consulting role unless they have some social skill or you feel comfortable putting them in front of a customer or client. Um, that's not always true depending on how big it is. But the... Um, Consultants have a, 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 a really interesting career arc in the sense that they're, they need to be extremely um, – typically consultants – we wouldn't hire consultants in the industry most typically for, for kind of routine stuff. People usually bring in consultants because of their – they have very unique expertise um, or they can do something that a company can't do on its own. Because especially here in California, most companies don't want to hire consultants. They want people that are invested in the company that are doing things. So if you're coming in as a consultant, you've really got some kind of skill that most people don't have. On top of which, you have some ability to execute and to, to drive the, um, the company in a different way or, or get them where they want to be. Now, the reason I say all that is because utilization is often used as a proxy to understand how effective you've been. 
Let me explain what utilization is. So for people that aren't in the industry, utilization is, is measured in different ways in different companies, but the most simple way that they typically do it is just to say, look, you work here, let's say 2,000 hours. Uh, <laughs> we pay you a salary for 2,000 hours a year, which is let me roughly, right? Let's just say it's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. Um, how many of those 2,000 hours could we actually bill you out for, right? So, so by bill you out, I mean like you're on a customer, you're selling an hour <laughs> for X number of dollars. How many of those 2,000 hours, your inventory of 2,000 hours, did you actually deliver? And um, so you could be like, you could, you know, you could theoretically be over 100%. You could be like overutilized. And um, if you think about the economics of how consulting firms work, they make money. That's how they make money is by you billing time. And so, you know, it can be very much a proxy for saying, you know, this one consultant is getting used a lot. So, you know, that person must have really special expertise, special ability to uh, execute or impact the customer. So we're going to, you know, that utilization is really awesome. And so we want to use that person a lot more, whereas somebody else's utilization is lower, you know, as a, a shorthand way of saying, well, you know, they only build a thousand hours, so maybe, you know, they're not the right person for this industry. Um, but that creates a huge amount of stress as a consultant, right? Because if you think about it's, it's kind of the crux of where the book I have is called Day One, Hour One. That, and um, But th executing well in that first hour of the first engagement is like where you're thinking, like, am I going to be able to stick around on this project? So you've got the pressure of the project, the client, the people on the ground, your managers, you have to know all about the technology. You've got to be on the bleeding edge. And then you're worrying about whether you have enough hours to bill. That makes it sound really dismal. I hope in the book I like paint a picture why it's actually a really great career. But, you know, it's this pressure of like, oh, my God, I have to make myself useful. But if you think about if you really step back and think about what that means, it's, in some ways, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of harsh, but it's kind of also how economics works, too. And so, you, you know, you want to be relevant and valuable. And I think when consultants spend a lot of time thinking about their utilization, um, you know, it's it's a kind of a proxy for how your career goes. You know, like I said, I just returned from Silicon Valley yesterday. And, you know, it's a pretty tough environment. You know, if you want to be a software engineer there, you know, this is in the 1990s anymore. You better be really sharp on your game all the time. And that's how consulting is. So. Yeah, and, and and so yeah, so one thing one has to be aware of throughout one's career is the, the the I mentioned the word gaze before, but the gaze of your manager upon you is actually like pretty specific in some cases where they're like, this is exactly how many hours this consultant billed, uh, yeah. and this is exactly how much we paid them, and what's the difference between the two, uh, and but at the same time, of course, as you write, you know, but but you know, even though you can't bill out anybody for speaking at a conference. Uh, that increases the value that you can build yourself out at going forward um, uh, and things like that. So it's not, it's never, it's never like really, or it ought not to be treated as being something as, as precise as just the, the sort of like simplest way of formulating the metric. But it is something that as a consultant, you have to keep in mind what other people's view is of your utility generally. And that's both your managers and your clients. Um, one thing I really liked about your book and, and you sort of getting into this a little bit is the, the, focus you have on mindsets. Uh, this is something that that's very important to me uh, in the way I try and think about the world that we often try and formulate things in terms of like forces or 
lists and things like that. But actually, every situation a human being is involved in is involves the mindset that they're in and that the mindset that other people are in. And so this is, although it seems a bit abstract, it's actually a very powerful way of thinking through situations. Um, and uh, your book is all about, you know, day one, hour one. And I found it just so, so fascinating, like the sort of drama of it. Uh, is something like it's something that might not be apparent to people who are outside it. But the the work of a consultant is, you know, Sunday night, you say goodbye to your family and you fly off to another city. It could be many hours away. Uh, you could be uh, as you the example, an example that you give, I think, is, you know, there you are. You suddenly find yourself lying in bed at two in the morning, but it's actually midnight your time. And then you, you do the work. And I've been in this situation myself where it's like, oh, wait, hold on. So my first meeting is going to be at this time, at this place. And then you have to back out when you have to get up. Uh, and then you realize, oh, that's in like three hours or four hours. Uh, and then you're like, oh, but, you know, and should I use that time to sleep or sh how much of that time should I use to, you know, prepare myself for this day one hour one situation where it's not it's not just about like first impressions. It's like there's going to be a, a, a sort of knock on effect of everything that happens from that first moment. And then you're like, oh, no, am I really up to date on my company's technology that I'm trying to teach these people about? Oh, no, who's my real point of contact going to be, including how am I going to get through security? Is, is my team going to be all there on time and stuff like that? So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your approach to to uh, preparing for day one, hour one, assuming you've had at least a few hours to get ready before you hop on that plane. Yeah, you know, I think... Um... Yeah, so day one, hour one for people that aren't in the industry. So you, you often have um, – I, I, I highlight that moment just because it's like where everything kind of comes together. So so usually before day one, hour one, there's been a lot – there's been – especially in professional services um, for software companies. For consulting firms, it, it can be a little different. But um, typically it's like a kind of short engagement, you know, anywhere from like one week to maybe 12 weeks. Um, but there's been a long sales process that led up to it. And then the consultant's done a lot of enablement, maybe is rolling off another project, whatever it is, you know, all your knowledge and all the, the hopes of the customer and then really the company you work for, like all come to life on that one moment. So it's a ton of pressure to put on any one person, right? And to your point, like it can color the entire, and we call them engagements or projects, engagements. Um, it can color the entire engagement because if it's, if it's a bad first hour, you know, it's going to take a lot of hours after that to recover from it. And so um, the reason I talk about mindsets, I think, is useful because, um, you know, it's like there's so much to know, right? There's so many details to try to keep track of. And, and your brain can, you know, you've already got a cram full of all this technical stuff. You've tried to kind of cram on the customer to understand what they're trying to do. And then you're, and then you got to, like I said, like you got to worry about logistics and you got to get your coffee in the morning on the way. And there's so much to have to do that, like, there's no way you can actually, like, go in there and be like, okay, I need to hold my body position the right way or I need to do this. Or you can't really focus on tactical things because in that moment, it's just like you don't know what's going to happen. Kind of like when you're interviewing. You know, I think for a lot of people, they, they understand the experience of going to an interview. Day one, hour one is very much like an interview, but with, like, real money behind it. And, um, and, you know, you're like, oh, I want to, I know I want to say this. And what if this question comes up? I'm, this is how I'm going to answer it. You know, you're trying to hold all that stuff in your brain. But I think really if you just kind of focus on mindsets and like what, you know, what do I want to be? You know, like who do I want to be? Who am I? I think it works better. And the first one I was highlight is service, right? Coming in with a service mentality, you're like, look, I'm just here to make you successful. 
You know what I mean? I'll, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you successful. Like I, I may not have all the knowledge, and, and that takes a little pressure off you. I've got a whole team behind me I can reach back to to help figure out the problems if I can't solve them on the spot. Even if the customer is being difficult, I'm just there to serve them, right? Like I'm not <laughs> – I'm just there to make them successful. And I think if you focus on that kind of mentality, then all the things will come out of it. Like, you know, listening well, hearing well, getting out of your own head for a while, getting in their head for a bit. You know, I think, I think you're going to do great. And the second mindset you talk about is focus. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What do you, what do you mean when you talk about focus? I mean a few different things, but I think it's kind of like what I described. So, you know, You've got so much swirling in your head <laughs> as you're going through the project. And, you know, things like utilization. You're like, are they going to keep me on the project? Do they like me or not like me? Um, I think just focusing on what that customer ne- needs. You know, I think it's probably very similar to how I think about listening for tech leads. You know, just really get out of my own head, get into their world, and focus on what their needs are and leave all the other stuff behind for a while. And, you know, and, and typically there's a statement of work or a scope of work as well mm-hmm. that you'll have that I think you can, you write about how you can use that to sort of like, if, if you've suddenly sort of feeling a little bit at sea, you're like, wait a minute, what, how does this relate to the actual work that was defined and agreed upon at the beginning? And, and the, you know, when you, you ask the question, you know, what's the, in this day, one hour, one situation, you know, what, what does success from this engagement look like to you? And you can use these things to bring you, bring your focus back. Yep. Yeah. So for people that haven't seen this, what happens is typically there's a con there's a contract between like the customer and the and the vendor, and so the contract will have all kinds of like terms in it, but most importantly they'll have a list of things that are going to be done. Sometimes the long list is long and detailed. Sometimes it's kind of just short and loose. Um, but usually that list has been negotiated for days or weeks before you show up on day one, hour one. But what's interesting is like there can often be a big delta in time between the time that the list was written and the time you show up. So the list that you wrote may be kind of obsolete by the time you show up. So, you know, really like in that first hour, you're just really focusing on the idea of like, you know, hey, folks, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. to You know, I've got my service mentality. <laughs> I'm here to make you successful. What does that mean? You know, like I've got this list. Is this list still good? Are we still going to do these things? Is, you know, at the end of the, when I when I get on the last flight out of here. How are we going to know that I've done a good job and that and that you're successful? I think focusing on those things is is the kind of focus I'm talking about. Yeah, and the stakes the stakes can be really high, specifically with respect to the scope of work or statement of work, where you know people have negotiated a price which could be in the, in the millions for the for the engagement. Uh, and there can, I mean, I've been on the I've been on the uh, other side of it in engaging with consultants uh, or, or sort of. Uh, contacting consultants to uh, get bids on on contracts for things like due diligence in a big merger and, and stuff like that. And um, uh, there's legal implications, very significant legal implications, because if there's a dispute, you go back to that scope about, about timing or price or something like that. You go back to that scope of work. And so if it's out of alignment when you get started, you have to be able to communicate that misalignment in both directions both towards your client and towards your management. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it is a legal contract, right? And that's what the list says. Usually, um, typically the contracts will have a little, uh, depends on, there are different types of contracts. Um, but usually at just a straight time and materials contract will say, often say, here's the list of things we'll do, but really what you're buying is time. And so, you know, if we don't get to all those items on the list, then time's out. 
Um, there are other kinds of contracts that are fixed price where it's like we're going to accomplish X number of things. So instead of buying time, you're buying scope. Um, but either way, you know, typically once you get toward the end of the contract, somebody will say, oh, yeah, I guess we're kind of running out of time. What did that contract say? Did I get all the things that I wanted on here? So notwithstanding whatever the contract says, they're, they're going to suddenly pull out this task list more often than not and say, oh, we forgot to do, you know, a couple items here. And you may only have a few days or hours left. So kind of always coming back to that task list. If the task list is wrong, there's there's processes usually like called a change request or something. You can put in something to like change the legal te- terminology or just at least get some kind of writing that says, you know, depending on your company and policies, like what, <laughs> what are we, I know this is what we said we were going to do, but I'm here now. What are we actually going to do? And just making sure, you know, usually there's a project manager in, involved in the, in the project who can kind of help you with that. But if not, then it's kind of on you to say, let's make the list, right? And let's always keep coming back to that list every day with the idea that the list is supposed to contribute to an end state at the end that made you successful. Um, before we go on to talking about your uh, experience as a writer, and I know you, you blog and you've actually, you, you create podcasts as well, and you've written a couple of books. Um, I wanted to talk to you about something that's hopefully kind of a little bit fun. Um, uh, we often see articles for, you know, top 10 trips for the busy traveler or something like that. And I, I had a, a period of time in my career when I traveled a great deal. Um, and uh, I had to come up with some routines and things like that, that to, to optimize things and to minimize, you know, uh, mistakes and things like that. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about what, what are some of your, you know, tips for the, for the busy traveler, what are the little tricks you have, you know, for, um, for traveling and, and making sure everything goes smoothly? Uh, yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't, now that the work has become more and more remote, you know, early in my, uh, uh, consulting career was like every week, you know, it was like travel, travel, travel. Um, but now, you know, less and less so, but that said, I mean, it's still enough. Um, one of the things for people that are brand new to it, make sure you get your loyalty program. So there are, um, this is kind of obvious for people to travel a lot, but the, um, you know, tr- try to pick an airline and try to stick with it because you can get points, right. And they start to give you status, which I traveled so little last year, I lost my status. And it's just been, it's just like completely changed the experience of traveling. Like I said, I just flew in front to LAX last night. And, um, but definitely like one of the simplest things I do is like, I actually try to travel. This, this will not work for a lot of consultants, but I travel, I try to travel like really light. So, um, like I don't even bring a laptop with me anymore, which is like a really, crazy thought for a lot of folks. Um, so I'll just bring like a Bluetooth keyboard and my, my phone and I can get almost everything done that I need to be get done. But I know for people that write code for a living, it's not going to work. Um, the other thing I do is like stuff like, um, like, uh, the, like toiletries, right? Like deodorant and and that kind of stuff. I just always have that in a pack that's ready to go. Like I have a little travel size pack. I think that's super useful. And then finally, I always have a list of all the things I want to make sure I bring because invariably I'll forget something like a brush, right? So just have this list that you copy and paste every single time you're going to fly and just like you can just eyeball. You're like, yep, 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 yep. Because, you you know, you do it enough, you develop this memory and like you kind of lay everything out on your bed and the night before you're like, okay, socks, underwear, undershirt, (laughs) you know, and you kind of mentally count how many you need for how many days, you know, I need two undershirts, I need two dress shirts, got my running shoes, right? You know, you kind of mentally do it. But if you have it written down, then you don't have to remember anything. And the, the less cognitive load you can put on your brain, 
before you're going into day one, hour one, the better. You know, like the last thing you want to be doing is like trying to remember <laughs> what you need to pack, you know. Yeah, no, it's actually that's really that's really cool. Uh, Maxie, I used used the list method myself, and one of one of the reasons it was so like it, it's it's again it's it's mindset and your emotions that you're actually partially managing with this kind of thing. And like, I'm a single guy, so like that means there's kind of there's certain risks involved in sort of leaving all of a sudden for a few days. And like one of my my joke is like leaving a banana on the table kind of thing. And you're like, oh damn it. Uh, but if you have a list, it's not just the the things that you get done. It's being able to like when you're panicking when you get into that taxi. And you're like, yeah. wait a minute, I went through the list. I know I did that. I don't remember all the things I yeah. did, but I know I went through the list. So, you know, just, you know, calm down. Um, uh, and uh, actually, one of the things about managing mood, just to share, one of the things that I came up with was um, for any particular airport, I had a routine that I did at that airport. Like, I'm yep. going to go, if I'm uh, in Dulles, I'm going to go to five guys. You know, if I'm, you know, and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And like picking a restaurant and even a specific dish that I would get. And then you could anticipate, oh, yeah, I'm going to be going there. So I'm going to be having a club sandwich and I'm going to be getting, I don't know, like a mojito or whatever, whatever it was. <laughs> but like having these these set things that you do in various places can make you feel more comfortable and even like anticipate something rather than be nervous or worry about it. Yeah, yeah, you definitely, yeah, once you, like, travel enough, you get used to, like, the different airports, and you get your routine, right? And depending on how day one, hour one went, you may be getting something stronger than Mojito, right? But, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, you kind of learn, like, all the little quirks of all the little restaurants, and which ones you like, and what time you need to get there, how long, you know, if you fly through Denver International, you know, anybody who flies through there would know, like, oh, my God, just getting through security is, like, a huge ordeal, and, like, you know, versus, like, Burbank, which is like this little tiny regional airport, which is just a breeze, right? So you kind of, once you learn all that stuff, then it makes life a lot easier for sure. Yeah, it's funny. You can even get to know like people personally, um, like, you know, <laughs> sort of like maitre d' or even a waitress or something like that. You can be, oh, great, that one, they're they're fast and they bring the bill right away and, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's really, it's really interesting the things you learn. You could do a whole podcast. Like. Somebody should write a book about like traveling and you should do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, I mean that you know what was that movie Up in the Air or something? I mean, so much of that is like just so true. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Actually, I remember. I remember I saw that before I I traveled a lot, and then but when uh, I started traveling a lot, I was like, oh man, totally. <laughs> These are the things you think about. Um, yeah. uh, so moving on to the last part of the interview. Um, uh, so you've written a couple of books on Lean Pub, and I, I know you blog, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing process. So what 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 attracted you? I mean, you actually mentioned something previously, but what attracted you? to lean pub and do you recall how you how you learned about us oh geez you know i think i knew about lean pub from and, and first of all i mean it's like an amazing service right i love it um Thanks. yeah it's great um and i think the, the whole idea of like i think i heard about it probably when i was just leaving seattle and the whole lean movement and the idea of like hey let's just get something out the door fast and um you know i think is so useful for writing because i think there are a lot of people who would like to write you know, and they've got some idea about something they want to write, and you, you probably you probably already know what I'm going to say because you've probably heard the story a million times. But you know, to write is just you just got to write, you know, and get something out the door. Um, I had a, I did a, in a, in law school. I did um, legal writing is like a thing. It's like a course, but you can actually go real to it really advanced levels with it, and um, which I did. Because they say like lawyers are actually the highest paid professional writers, actually, which is something to think about. But and there was this course that was taught by a guy who what he did is there's a book called Style. Um, 
uh, it's like I think style, lessons, and clarity and grace. It's not the Strunken White book. It's it's a different book called Style, and I just like absolutely love that book. And the idea behind it is that um, the best writers, and I, I'm by no means putting myself in the category of best writers when I say best writers, because like definitely I need a lot of work on those two books. But um, the best writers are just really good editors. So the idea is, I think sometimes when you when you go to write, it's like you're like you you read what other people wrote, and you're like, oh my god, I want to write like that. But what you find out when you really dig under the hood is uh they don't write like that <laughs> like their first stuff is terrible right and so then they go through and they edit it and edit it and edit it and that's where things really get good so so i love blogging for that reason because i can kind of just slam something out there and then go revise it over and over again and lean pubs just perfect for that so the idea that i can like you know i'd probably be immobilized i wouldn't even have these two books done if i had to do it through a traditional service it just wouldn't even happen because i would just be paralyzed <laughs> It would be sitting in my on my file on my uh, computer hard drive somewhere where I'm like, oh yeah, I'll get around to editing it. But once it's out the door, I'm like, oh my god, I'm committed. You know, and people are downloading this stuff, and I, I, I owe them something good. You know, I'm like now now I've got real people reading. I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta, I want to really improve it for them versus having it just sit on my hard drive and it's only me that cares. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. That's it. You honed in right on one of the one of the big motivations behind behind LeanPub, which is to get your work out there early and and get an audience, and yeah. the excitement and the and like the, the I would say positive pressure of having an audience out there. Like you know, people are like, "When's the next chapter coming out?" That's the greatest thing. Like that's the and they're the best. And early readers are the best editors. Um, well, I shouldn't maybe say the best, but early early readers are great editors because they'll be like, "I found a typo on page four. Uh, and one of the things we enable is you to update your your manuscript and make that change available within minutes, uh, which and people love that. They absolutely love seeing a change that they've, uh, like a typo they've found be fixed in a book. Um, and it establishes this really great connection between the reader and the, and the writer, uh, which is relatively unique to the way we do things. Um, so one, one, the last question I always like to ask on this uh, podcast is if there was one thing that really bugs you about LeanPub that we could fix for you, or one feature we could, you know, wish list feature we could build for you. Uh, is there anything you can think of that you would, you would have us do for you? I have one little thing, which you may or may want to not want to keep in the podcast, but I noticed it doesn't work very well in Safari, the editor that seems to blank out. So on Chrome, it seems to work really well, but on Safari, it's a little less stable. Oh, well, thank you very much for sharing that. We actually haven't had anyone report that, but uh, that's probably because, I mean, I mean, we, one of, one of our sort of, internal weaknesses is that we all use Chrome all the time. Uh, and, and so, uh, and, and they're like, you know, all sort of tech companies have their little biases like that. And we, we all work on Macs and things like that. So, so problems, particularly with, um, Safari and if, for anyone listening, uh, we'd love, we actually like to hear about problems with LeanPub. It helps us improve it. Same, same way that authors like to hear about problems with their books. Um, and yeah, so this is the first report we've had of it not working so well in Safari. And so we'll definitely set aside a little bit of time, for someone to go through it because we're we made a big overhaul of our in-browser editor a while ago and uh our you know and people are actually like like we're open about the fact that it kind of sucked in the past but now we've got people writing books that are you know hundreds of pages long with like you know like actually academic type books with lots of like footnotes and things like that and it seems to work really well but any anywhere that you see lean pub not working we want it we want to hear about that and you can email yeah. us at hello at leanpub.com uh, with any problems that you find uh, the other one i would say before yeah. you move on yeah. is and maybe you've heard this before i mean I, I didn't hear it on any of the other podcasts but so i come from an open source background so my prior company was red hat and uh 
one of the things that I think would be super interesting, but I don't know, you'd have to make it pretty lightweight is the idea of what if as a writer, I write something like, like this, like professional services or tech lead, a lot of people have their own point of view on this. And so, you know, it would be cool for me to open it up to say, Hey, you know, if other people have contributions they want to send in to me besides just like, Hey, you know, here's an email, here's a, here's an idea, but actually make a change kind of like on GitHub, like the whole world's getting kind of used to this like collaborative development cycle. It'd be cool if you could have some kind of way of doing that, you know, or, or if nothing else, some kind of GitHub hook or something. I think, I think a lot of your technical writers would really appreciate that. Yeah, we do. We do. Thanks for that. Yeah, we have we have uh, heard that from from authors before. I think, um, and it's like we've actually had because there's so many of our authors are programmers and you know creative people. We've actually had one or two people build their own little systems like that. And I don't say little uh, to be demeaning or anything like that. Like you know, just like simple simple things that you can do kind of in a in a night. Um, we do have a GitHub writing mode. I should mention. So if if you're writing your, if you're writing your book in GitHub writing mode, then anybody can can do a PR. Yeah, uh, uh, and uh, and and contribute to your book, and then you can you know sort of approve or reject that, and and add it to your book. So that and we have a Bitbucket writing mode as well. Uh, we also have a Dropbox writing mode, um, uh, which me and Dropbox Dropbox has various sort of collaboration features as well. Um, and we even we even had a Google Docs writing mode for a while, but it proved too difficult to have be reliant on a third party like that in order to sort of troubleshoot problems that people would have. But mm -hmm. but we, but collaboration is very important to us, and yes, it is completely missing. Well, almost completely missing from our in browser editor. In order to collaborate with someone using our in browser editor, you would actually need to invite, like in the in the in the efficient way that you're describing, you would actually have to invite them to be a co-author on your book. Right. Um, and that's not something that even the, the contributor would necessarily want if they're just like, here's a paragraph or here's some typo corrections or something like that. Um, we also do have, I should mention, we also have forums. So once your book's been published, you can create a forum and people can on, on based on the platform discourse uh, and people can people can contribute that way. But that is definitely something that we uh, should think about because we do know. I mean, we do know it's, it's how important collaboration is and, and sort of making that interaction between authors as, and readers as friction free and effective as possible is, is really important. So that's definitely something that we'll we'll think about going forward. Or maybe uh, GitHub issues, right? You know, the issue thing. That might be good for non-technical readers, right? Like, oh, yeah, I have a, there's an issue with your book. Here it is. Yeah, yeah. No, we've, we've actually, I've actually, uh, I was interviewing someone recently who actually, yeah, that's the way, they, even though their book wasn't in GitHub mode, they actually set up like a GitHub repository in order to use GitHub issues in order to sort of log issues with their book. So we've got some pretty creative tech savvy authors and they're, they're finding their own solutions in the, in the background to this very problem. And it is definitely something that we could uh, do them a service with by, by building something ourselves. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for taking the time to do this podcast. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I really enjoyed reading your books and I would definitely recommend to anyone, e even if you're not a consultant, if you want to understand, if you're, on, if you're on the other side of things, uh, on the other side, uh, if you want to understand the challenges that consultants face uh, reading Michael's book, Professional Services, Day One, Hour One, that uh, would be a really, really good thing to do. I would highly recommend. Great. Thank you for having me. It was great. It's been fun. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.